Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brang. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that serves stigmatized communities in navigating their healing experiences through the experiences of other people who have been affected by similar things. This podcast has grown into a space of serving far more than just individuals who are living with herpes as a suicide prevention resource. So I'm here with Brittany Polycastro. Is that how you say it or did I say it wrong? Got it. Oh yes, I'm always I'm always happy when I get it right the first time. Brittany, before we get started, what are your pronouns? She, her. Thank you. All right, so Brittany, you are living with HSV one genital herpes. So we got genital HSV one. So I want to I'm taking it back old school. Remember when we used to interview people with herpes about their experiences, <laughs> and we've gone into areas that haven't been like the traditional bread and butter route of the podcast, I guess. But these are all important stories and I want to make sure to be able to continue to provide support. Granted, we have several episodes at this point with various people's experiences. So as long as they are going to keep coming, like we're going to share them. So Brittany, let's talk about your experience. When were you diagnosed? How'd you find out? What was going on around then? I'll let you talk and I'll just wait for you to finish points before I jump in and ask questions or anything. Sounds good. So it's so interesting because I haven't thought about the actual time I was diagnosed. I haven't talked about that in a while. So I'm I'm actually excited to do that. (laughs) I was diagnosed when I was 21 years old. That was 2001. First, I felt cold-like symptoms. And then I, I had a sore throat. I had a fever. I had chills. And then the source came. I remember that was like the, oh, shit moment. I was with a partner, so we were together at that point for only maybe like three or four months. We wound up being together for three and a half years. And it was a very prolific relationship in many ways because it was very emotionally abusive and um, a very intense relationship. It is the relationship that brought me into uh, yoga and, and all of these amazing things. And it also was the relationship in which I contracted genital herpes. And so once I found out and I got the sores, my partner actually went with me to uh, the uh, OBGYN and I got tested and... She never told me, in fact, I did not know that I had HSV-1, actual one. I always thought I had two for most of the time that I have had genital herpes. Back then, in 2001, there was none of this. There was no conversation around having herpes, what that looked like, around erasing the stigma. I mean, was there internet? Maybe there was internet. (laughs) Maybe. But it was, it was, it was quite a long time ago. And so there were no resources besides like pamphlets and really scary images and crap on the internet that I didn't really trust. And so when I found out the doctor was like, you have herpes, it was like, you have genital herpes. There was no, this is the abbreviation. This is the kind you have. There was none of that, at least to my recognition, to my memory. And so I had it, and apparently my partner had it too, and I contracted it from him. Uh, He was asymptomatic. I think for a while didn't really believe that he had it, but he wound up giving it to the person that he was with after me as well. When I contracted it, it it was painful physically, but I think for the most part I 
kind of disassociated from it because I was in a relationship and he had it. And so there wasn't a lot for me to quote unquote, to worry about at that time because I had some outbreaks. I knew how to treat them. I got on medication and the biggest thing around the stigma that I've found and that uh, I've experienced and that I've uh, seen by many people that have emailed me based on articles I've wrote is that the hardest thing or one of the hardest things is telling people and being rejected by people. And so in that moment, I didn't have to worry about that. And so I was just like, word, I have herpes, whatever. And that was my experience. So we were together from 21 to 23, 24, something like that. So three, eight, two and a half years. And then we broke up. And then there was this awareness that I had it. But to be honest, most of the people I didn't actually tell that I had it. Because at that point, and this is just like 2004, so quite a while ago, I didn't necessarily think I could spread it. And if I didn't have an outbreak, I didn't understand what asymptomatic shedding was or anything like that because I was never educated around it, even though I went to the doctor and to the OBGYN and she told me about it, but I still, it, I didn't know. And so every now and then I would tell people, but I would say my, my safe sex practices were not half as good as they are now. We're talking many, many years later, 18 years later. And so that was my experience for a while. First, and again, complete disconnection. I didn't really start feeling the effects of having herpes for years, for years. After that, I finally, I, I had a, a partner that I told. And there was a couple people that I did tell, but it, I kind of just brushed it off as I did. So finally, I met someone when I was 25 and I said, I told him right before we were about to have sex. I have herpes. The funny thing is he was a doctor and he was like, meh, I don't care. <laughs> and we proceeded to have unprotected sex. You know, not then, then we used protection, but once we decided we wanted to date and be together, our method of, um, of birth control was the pullout method. And so he contracted it for me. Then he took it seriously. And then he started researching. And through his research, I started realizing what kind of was there. Still didn't affect me, quote unquote. At this point, I was not having outbreaks anymore. I've not had an outbreak in probably like 12 or 13 years at this point. And I was, again, safe and snugly in a relationship. Then we broke up. Then reality hit. And so we're talking 2007. So that's how many years? Six years after I was actually diagnosed that I even started to connect with what it meant because in regards to the stigma, because then I started telling people consistently. Like then I was like, I need to tell people. I actually, I am now educated. I understand what this is. I understand that I can spread it. So I need to tell people. So then I started telling people and then the rejection started. You know, I find it fascinating for so long. It wasn't even an issue for me for six full years. And, and so why all of a sudden does it become an issue? Nothing really had changed. It was just I changed. Something about me changed. The stigma was still there. It always had been there. But for whatever reason, I didn't have a connection to it. And I wasn't experiencing any repercussions from it until I was ready to. And I say that because to me, having herpes 
or any kind of STI that has this kind of stigma, herpes is one of the biggest, so we'll say having herpes, is about worthiness, in my experience, in my experience with a lot of people. It's just an avenue, it's just a vehicle for me to tell and strengthen the story about myself and I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of love, which is one of my stories. It's still one of my stories. It's just I don't play it out through herpes anymore. I play it out through other things. That is what started because for whatever reason that wound started coming up it was like I'm ready to be healed see me look at me love me care for me before that completely disconnected and on that tip it's so fascinating because what was happening in my life that time that made me ready to have that conversation with myself which I really didn't have fully for many years after that but it started then the pain started to come up and the rejection started to come up and I was going through, finally, a 200-hour teacher training. I've been teaching yoga for a bit. but So that was happening. So what is what is a 200-hour teacher training do? It cracks, you open. Right? And so I started feeling deeper feels, and all of these things were coming. And with that started the my experience with rejection. Okay, that lasted for a really long time. The way I disclosed contributed to that because I was super dramatic in my disclosure, and it was always about please love me this is the worst thing ever and if you love me despite all of this then that means I'm worthy that was my story even though I didn't say that but that was what the energy was behind it and so that lasted for a while and it started like I would tell someone they'd be like okay and then they'd stop touching me you know either they wouldn't touch me or they would only touch me in certain ways maybe they would I'm super comfortable talking about sex so they would only use their hands on me. They wouldn't use their mouths on me. We wouldn't have, at this point I was only with men, I, 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 we wouldn't have PIV sex. These things were happening, but we wouldn't talk about it. Because back then, my communication skills were not as good as they are right now. And so I just didn't have those skills. And I was afraid of rejection, which is a lot of times the reasons why we don't talk about things, right? Because we're like, well, if I ask that person this thing and they tell me the thing I'm afraid of hearing, well, that's not going to be ideal. So instead, it was just a silent rejection over and over again with these people. Sometimes we would break up. They would break up with me. I wouldn't know why. Sometimes I'd call them out, admit it. And that was happening from 2007 to 2011 for a while. And I'll say I, around 2009, things started to shift for me because I, and I'll talk about this briefly, I started to shift myself. Can you throw your hair to the other side? Thank you. Your hair was brushing up against the mic. And you, all right. It's all right. Got it. Things began to shift for you. And so in 2009, I started to shift because I started to grow. Everything changed around that time. My relationship with my sexuality, like just how I thought of myself, started to shift. My relationship with men, needing to be the hottest person in the room, because that was a story that I needed for a really long time, and I received a lot of validation around that. At the same time, once once I let them know about, about the herpes, then it, it shifted because my comfort zone was never being the girl who was adored consistently and then played those games. That wasn't my story. That wasn't my comfort zone. My comfort zone was the girl that was initially adored, and then I had to fight for that love. That was my story. And so herpes fit perfectly into that story, and I was perfect 
for, it was like, ah, there we go. I could just use herpes to continue feeding these wounds. And so in 2009 and 2010, I did a ton of travel. I traveled around the world. I was doing a lot of different service work and humanitarian work. And it was this place that I started building schools through a yoga organization that I started, through a yoga teacher training. So I started connecting with a piece of my purpose at that point that shifted. But for a long time, that was my purpose. And so all of these things started to come together. I went to India. I had one of the most life-changing experiences of my life. All of these cool things started happening. And during that time when I was traveling, I was in Brazil, Tanzania, and India for about four months. Because at this point, I wouldn't say I became celibate. And it wasn't because of the herpes. It was a little bit because of the herpes. It was like I wasn't having intercourse with people. And it just kind of wasn't happening. I was also recognizing that when I did have intercourse with people, it definitely took me from my center and I would get very attached. And then as a result of that, wouldn't be able to follow the path that I was following because I would be all hung up and subdued. And so I appreciated her piece in that way, that it was keeping me from diving into something that probably wasn't best for me at that moment. And so we'd say probably a year I didn't actually have intercourse. I had other versions of sex, but not intercourse. And I went away and I was traveling. And during that time, I, I really wanted a partner. Like I really wanted to have a relationship. So I had this piece of paper and I wrote everything down on the paper that I wanted in a partner. And then my very last day on this four month trip, I was in India and I had this really amazing experience. Some could call it a Samadhi Samadhi experience. And I took the paper, I burned it. I put it in the Ganges river and she like scooped it up and then less than a year later i met my partner current partner now my okay partner, my primary partner that was in 2011. i mentioned that right about the writing it down and all that because i absolutely called him to me it was time and when we met at first i was like no nah, Wait, when you met, when you met, don't tell me he was like, hey, I found this piece of paper. (laughs) (laughs) That would be amazing. (laughs) That paper was was burned in the beginning. When we met, I was like, maybe he seems cool, but I don't know. And then, you know, it took some time and I realized that I really, I liked him. And then I told him and I told him. And again, my disclosing has shifted a lot, but I told him after we had already had some forms of sex. And so we had already had oral sex, right? Before I used to disclose to people before I'd have PIV sex, because that was to me what I wanted to do. I've shifted that. And so I told him and he was in shock and he definitely took it hard. He's a kind and loving person, so he didn't take it out on me, but you know, I'm going to speak for him in just a little bit because we've talked extensively about this, that his thing was it had taken him a long time to meet someone that really felt like it could go somewhere and someone that really cared for him and saw him and saw his light. And now this, it was like, really, really, like, really, that's kind of the thing. And I remember, and this is, I love this, this piece of the story because it just speaks to how freaking adorable my partner is, is that I told him and he had feels about it. And he asked if we could go watch the movie Tangled, which it's like the Disney Rapunzel. And so we went downstairs and we watched Tangled because it gave him good heart feels. And that was what he needed in the moment that I told him I had general herpes. And so I just love that because I think it's so sweet. And so he was like, okay, okay. We talked about it and I told him all that I knew. 
And then he started to pull away. And I was like, dude, it's happening. <laughs> it's, you're pulling away. What's up? And I remember I was in my bedroom. I was on the phone with him. And I remember sitting against the wall in complete silence, just giving him the space to feel how he felt. Ultimately, because I actually was able to use my words at this point, because I had the skills to do so, and I wasn't afraid, I felt safe with him, I was able to call him out, and we were able to talk about it, and he decided to stay. It didn't make me feel like, oh, I'm staying, this is a big deal, or anything like that. He didn't He didn't do that. He didn't play those games. He didn't succumb to that kind of stigma, um, even though, obviously, he is part of that, that stigma, and he was affected by it. And so we decided to stay together and for the first year of our relationship not only did we use condoms but we used saran wrap for everything and it was super demoralizing to have saran wrap over my pussy when we would have oral sex or when we would have regular sex and to hear the saran wrap go shh, 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 it was freaking annoying and I felt like shit but this is what he needed it's okay that he needed that I had a story for a long time that it was wrong for him to need that it wasn't I needed to also just feel how it felt and advocate for myself and ask for what I needed to. And I didn't know how to do that at the time because I just wanted to also honor what he needed. If somebody needs extra protection like that, it's okay. I chose to take that and continue to feed my story, feed that story that I wasn't enough and I wasn't good and all of these things. Finally, I was like, I can't do this saran wrap shit anymore. Finally, we, we stopped with the saran wrap, and we've been together for almost nine years now. And he's never contracted it for me. We are now polyamorous. We opened our relationship four years ago. And there's obviously more than that. I've been talking for a while. And so that's where I am now. That concludes this episode of... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> a lot to say about that. Whenever I interview people, I mean, the herpes experiences are there, and this is quite a unique experience in itself. I can relate to the herp or the herpes 200-hour, the yoga teacher training <laughs> for 200 hours. I'm going into week five. I'm going to be halfway done, and that's what this does. It has broken me open. Like, over the last week, I've taken, uh, over the last two weeks, actually, I've had to take some time to myself, which is new for me. That, to me, was, like, very uncomfortable, and all the epiphanies came in so i can relate <laughs> to what you felt and you beginning to just sort of like break open and begin to see things that have been there the whole time but in a different scope given all that you just gave me props to you for going after what you want what speaks to me the most right now is you sitting in the corner on the phone in silence after feeling your partner beginning to pull away from you what did it take in you to call to that where many people I'm sure would just be like oh well he doesn't want me it's because I have herpes and just sort of let that be the end of the story rather than doing that little bit of extra effort to point out the elephant in the room and being like hey I come back like that takes a lot of vulnerability it's a great question because I because I never did that before I was never able to do that before with other relationships and so it's two things one was the amount of work that I was just doing on myself. I had done a lot of deep, deep work. I was working with Shawana Kaler at that time. You know, we're talking, I was 10 years into teaching yoga, and there was a lot of healing that was taking place. 
So that's the first place, right? I was just at a place where I was more open to be able to have that conversation. It wasn't as scary as it was before. But the other piece and the bigger piece was that I have always felt very safe with my partner. And I'm not a therapist or a psychologist, but um, I do love talking about attachment styles. And so I am just going to talk about that for just a moment. Um, Nick is purely functioning, which means that love and intimacy for Nick is comfortable. And my attachment style is anxious to Yeah, which having herpes and all the things I've already talked about, that story, because this is an anxious, preoccupied person's story is I am not worthy of love. And so again, herpes is perfect for that. So perfect for I am not worthy of love because it's so easy to get that affirmed. So easy. With Nick though, I usually attract avoided types, which their fear is fear of being trapped, fear of enmeshment, fear of the opposite of anxious preoccupied, right? And so that's why they attract each other like moths to flames and it's usually super tumultuous and intense. I've only had a couple securely functioning relationships and Nick is that. I've always felt super safe with Nick. As a result, I think that had a lot to do with me feeling like I could just call him out. I mean, that's our relationship to this day. Our communication is amazing and it's gotten even better with the three and a half years of therapy that we've done since we opened our relationship. But even back then, I just felt safe. I felt safe that even if he decided that he didn't want to be with me, that it wasn't going to feel like a rejection because I knew how much he cared about me. I just knew that even though it was, it was early. Like I told him early, but I just felt that. And so that's, that's why. You said that you experienced a lot of silent rejections just in the way people would touch you. And I'm going to assume some psychological, emotional distancing as well, given after you would disclose. Why is it that the saran wrap thing didn't feel like a silent rejection? Is it because of where it was coming from with Nick and you feeling what you felt and him being as um, safe for you as he was? Yes, it was a silent rejection. It absolutely was. And it did feel that way. The difference was that he was showing up in every other way. That was the difference. Were we both victims of the stigma at that point? Absolutely. And that's just how it happened. If I was in that situation now, would I have advocated for myself in a different way? Yes. Every time that that happened, there was a little piece of me that felt rejected. But the reason why I was able to also be with it, and I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound really fucked up, but I'm going to say it. Is that because he wanted to be with me? When we're talking about stigma and when we're talking about herpes stigma and what that means, a lot of people have this fear that someone isn't going to want to be with them. And I had someone that wanted to be with me and that was loving and that was kind and that never held it against me in any other way other than feeling that he needed to protect himself. And so, you know, he didn't shame me for it verbally. He didn't do anything other than say, this is when I need to feel safe. And so that's okay that he needed that. Could we have maybe gone about it a little bit of a different way? Sure. Would we probably do that now? Yes. Would I be with somebody that wanted to use saran wrap now? Probably not. But who knows? <laughs> right? That's what it was. It was always laced with compassion, but I still took it as a silent rejection. Oftentimes when we face rejection, the way we respond to it is in a, a way in which we've responded to rejection in other ways in our life. So you mentioned being anxious 
preoccupied attached. That was your attachment style. To me, what that says is, you know, the opposite of avoidant. So avoidant person who is experiencing rejection may disassociate. Whereas an anxious person experiencing rejection may like, why are you doing this to me? What is it? I can compensate in different ways. Is that ballpark at all? 100%. So in that, I do believe that there's something there for people. I think that maybe we can help each other, you know, bring it out or create it in a way that it can be taken in. Because what's coming up for me is um, when we look at the way we view rejection, rather than just seeing it as how we've seen it in the past and attaching a previous narrative to what it is now there's something to be learned there maybe something's clicking for you right now if you want to add to it <laughs> so just in your experience so you experienced the silent rejection and it was okay like what was the challenge of accepting that sort of rejection versus the other rejections in the past or was it just that nick is a good dude basically what we're talking about is again like just the narratives that we have Right, the narratives that we have that keep us in a space, uh, yeah, in the circle, in the circle of rejection, in the circle of fear, in whatever it is, whatever our wounds are, we attract those over and over again, especially through our relationships. Our relationships are amazing mirrors for that. And so I believe that we attract those experiences because we're ready to, to heal them or there's a piece of us that wants to heal them. And sometimes that happens and it's beautiful. And sometimes we wound up re-traumatizing ourselves. I think what's the difference between being ready to face rejection in a different way than I ever have before? I think that's different for each person. For me, it's always about doing my work. And by doing my work, it's about showing up for myself in whatever way. For a long time, it was just yoga. And this is really important, the incremental process of how we do our work. For a long time, I was a hot mess. <laughs> as a teenager, as a, you know, I was, had a lot of anger, a lot of pain, a lot of, of stuff inside of me. Trauma, we all have trauma in some degree, right? And so I had all that. Didn't know what to do with it for a long time. Then I found yoga. And yoga was a balm, a salve. It was really great and wonderful and definitely opened me up in a lot of amazing ways. I want to say this because a lot of people are like, oh, I do yoga and my life will change. Yes, sure, but it's a vehicle. It's a step. It's not the end-all, be-all. And I've been teaching it for almost 17 years. It's the invitation to go deeper. And so that's what it was for me. But I do believe that that's an invitation, interpretation that each person needs to take uniquely. For me, the next step was all this travel that I did. I did all of this travel. And, and again, I started opening up more, especially from my heart space. Then I came back. I started working with a healer, with a shamanic healer. She was a counselor. And so we did a lot of energetic work together. I've worked with healers all over the world. I've done all kinds of stuff like that. And so it was a very kind of spiritual place. Then, after Nick and I opened up our relationship, we went to a therapist, an actual psychotherapist, who is amazing. Because there was a, a part in our relationship where we didn't know if we were going to make it because shit got really intense. And so we did that. We're great. <laughs> we did our work. And so that was a deeper layer. I would never have been able to do that work 10 years before that, five years before that. Right? I would have never been able to do that. And so it's our ability to receive healing, to become more self-aware and all of that stuff 
is oftentimes incremental. If we remain open to that experience of wanting to thrive and wanting to grow and wanting to heal, things will keep coming. And so I'm still in therapy, but now I'm also in a year-long Tantra sex coaching program, which is some of the deepest work I have ever done. And it's amazing how much trauma and healing is coming up from what I'm doing now. And so the work is never done. It's incremental. You have to meet yourself where you are. Because of where I was when I was just started dating Nick, I was ready to be a little bit more courageous because I had the skills and the tools within myself to do that and not be afraid of rejection as deeply as I was before, and I was able to call him out. What we need to recognize is that wherever we are is where we are, and we can't force ourselves to be somewhere else. Now, that's important to remember when thinking about the past, like if someone's hearing this and they're, they're like, oh, I wish I would have done that in the past, you weren't ready to, and that's okay. Because if you're ready to now, you start from now. You start from this moment when you're ready. Because in five years from now, especially if you keep engaging with yourself and asking these questions and doing your work, whatever work that means for you, you're going to be ready to have another act of courage, whatever that is. Beautiful. Now, you did all of this for yourself in this relationship. Like I see on Instagram, you have such love and gratitude for Nick. How the hell do you juggle this same caliber of love or even just have this to extend yourself to other partners or invite other partners into your space? It's funny you should ask that because right now, I personally am... I'm not with additional partners right now. And so I'm still polyamorous, and Nick has several partners that he is absolutely thriving with. Again, just want to remind you that he is securely functioning. So polyamory comes way easier to him than it does to me. For me, polyamory has been really challenging. Polyamory was like the new herpes for me. Can I jump in and say something real quick? Because this is like, this has to come out. So... In my life experience, it has always been easier for women to find partners than it has been for men to find partners. And what I'm hearing right now is literally just blowing my mind. But also, there's also this thing where when men have a partner already, they're more attractive to more partners. I don't, and this has just been my experience. Like, whenever I've had a girlfriend, women be there left and right, but then whenever I was single, it was like I smelled different or something. <laughs> so, I can talk about that for, for a moment. Uh, so, there's a couple things with that. That was not, that was not Nick's experience in the beginning. It took Nick about two years to really come into a space where he was ready to attract the kind of people that could show up for him and see his worthiness. Nick is a very, very special human. Uh, I'm you know, a little biased, but like, even if I wasn't, he is off the charts amazing the way he shows up as a partner for all of his partners. And so for a long time, he was playing out his stories. Right? He was playing out his story of unrequited love and all of these things that he played out. He was doing that in polyamory. I was playing out my stories as well. For the record, just to be clear, <laughs> that I am not in partnership right now, not because I'm looking for anyone and I'm not finding them, but because I absolutely don't want to be. I'm not on dating apps, and right? I'm not doing any of that. And so, because 
if I wanted to be, I would be. <laughs> I would probably would have people. I don't have trouble meeting people at all, right? And so I, I just want to make that clear. Um, it's a choice for me. Um, and so where Nick is now, he is absolutely thriving. And the reason why he is thriving is because he is thriving. That's why his relationships are thriving, because he has done his work. He has been in therapy for three and a half years. He has a partner who has opened him up to a lot of those different modalities of healing. He meditates. He works out. He is dedicated to his thriving and living his best life, whatever that looks like for him. That's why he has a lot of partners right now in the sense of the work that he's done. That's what that's what I believe, and that's what I always believe. And I don't, I'm not saying that everyone has to do the kind of work that I'm doing. And I also want to make it known that we all are in different places of privilege, right? I am a cis white woman, and so I have the income to, to and the space to be able to do those things. And so I just want to make that that clear because we doing our work looks like different things for different people. And so that's really important to, to mention. It's a really important point for me, at least, to mention. Um, but but yeah, so I'm while I'm not in. Uh, relationship right now, additional relationships right now, the reason is because I feel like my secondary partner right now is myself. And for the first time, and I want to say like since I started dating, I don't have the urge or the need to have to be in another relationship. Because as soon as I became polyamorous, I was like, I need another partner. It was like that that uh, cultural thing of like needing to look for a partner and I need to find a partner. And, and I had a, a partner for a year and a half and it was an amazing relationship and also in many ways wildly unhealthy, but it ended and I tried to scramble and find other partners. And I think I had like somewhere like 27 first dates last, last year. Most of them that I was just like, meh, not into it. Most of them, it was my choice. How hard is it to find another Nick or in in a different way? I don't mean to say like you're looking for uh, quantity wise, another person like Nick, but quality wise, how challenging is it going to be to find someone that is going to feed you, challenge you, whatever else it is that you may be looking for in a partner? And is this something where you've written everything down on a piece of paper, lit it on fire and put it into the uh, river manifesting your next partner? I haven't. And the reason why, and, and like I said, I've been, I'm in the middle of a very demanding certification program. It's very, very demanding and very emotionally demanding. That's my focus right now. But what's happening and what I'm so acutely aware of is that, again, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's because it's so true. I always come back to myself. I always come back to my own healing and what I am available to now. And the reason why I was attracting partners that weren't quite a fit is because that's what I was available to at that point. I'm not where I am now then, right? Like I'm in a different place now. And so what I believe is that as I keep having these really deep breakthroughs about myself and healing a lot of trauma and a lot of these wounds that we all have, especially attachment wounds, when the time is right, I will attract a partner that is a fit. And for me, and this is something that's, that's a new understanding, a new revelation for me, 
my relationship with Nick is very reliable, steady, and stable. As a result, for a long time, our sexual engagement wasn't that tumultuous, crazy, passionate experience because I believe my narrative was that pleasure and pain were very intimately connected. Pain for me, I'm into BDSM, into kink, but not even just that kind of pain. Pain in the sense of the struggle that you know an anxious, preoccupied person has when they date an avoidant person, that push and pull and that pain of, of, of the fear of them not loving me and all of those things, that makes for some really good sex. And so that is always what I've sought out. And what I am shifting and learning and understanding is that what I thought was really good sex, which it was, but it was because the base and the foundation was very volatile, unhealthy, and tumultuous. And so my new exploration for myself right now is that how can I, and I literally, it's like a rewiring of the, of the nervous system and of the neural pathways, uh, which is happening right now, is how can I allow for a safe and steady relationship to bring me deep pleasure and deep satisfaction that is different from the volatile and tumultuous pleasure and sex that I've experienced in the past. And what my intuition tells me is that when I'm able to fully embrace that in my current relationship, that I will be able to then attract relationships that mirror that, right? Because a lot of times I've attracted plenty of people that are secure and, and offer safety, but I have been bored with them. And I have been like, meh. Hey, I just haven't been jazzed by them. For whatever reason, Nick slid through those cracks. Like, he made it through. I mean, thank God that he did. But as soon as we opened our relationship, I was in it. I was finding those really avoidant dudes, and I was, like, driving myself up a wall. So was it just... All of that stuff was happening. Was it kind of like, oh, all right, now I can go and get... I can do this because I have my secure, stable home. So I can go out and get that. I don't want to call it toxicity, the um, the intensity. Yeah, and, and toxicity isn't the worst word for it, to be honest. But yeah, the intensity. The intensity that came from a volatile situation. And the relationship that I had that I was in for a year and a half was lovely. And we had such a beautiful friendship as well. And I still have so much love for him. And at the same time, we both... We recently um, actually saw each other and talked and were able to really understand, because we've been broken up now for a year and a half, that our relationship is really unhealthy, too, because of our, our traumas and our wounds. But one thing I want to mention that is fascinating and kind of pulls us back into uh, you know, the, the conversation we started with around herpes is that what shifted was that all the people that I attracted once I opened our relationship I disclosed to every single one of them, and they were all fine with it. They were all fine with it. So we're batting and, at 100% now for this season, this season of relationships. <laughs> uh, and so what changed, besides all the work that I was doing and the healing, was right before that, before we opened our relationship, but it was still in that year, 2016, I wrote an article for the, well, I wrote it for my blog, and then I posted it on the Huffington Post, and 
that went viral, and it was um, about healing 16 years of rejection from having an SDI. And I still get letters from people from that article. And that was a really huge turning point for me in my relationship with herpes, because finally I was like, fuck this, everybody's going to know, and it's okay. I just... I put it out there, and that was really the first time I put out there. Now I, I blog about really intimate and vulnerable things, and that was the first time I really did that. I had no idea I was going to open up my relationship, and so there I am. Like you know, I had this article that people have accidentally just stumbled upon and knew before I even was able to disclose to them. But what happened was I was attracting people that were accepting of it. Either they already had it, and that was just like okay, cool, let's, that's, that's fine, we both have it, and we can be safe, but at the same time, it takes a little bit of the pressure off. Or there were people that were like, my ex had it, or my partner had it, or my sister had it, and so they had a sensitivity to it, because the stigma wasn't as intense for them. Like, a lot of people that don't know anything about it just go to the stigma, and this is for anything, right? If you know someone that is a certain way or has a certain thing or whatever it is, you're gonna be able to have more empathy and more compassion. Again, what changed? I changed. I was more open and my relationship with my wounds had changed. For the most part, in all the time that I've been open, the way that I disclose is so different now. I think I mentioned before that when I disclosed in the past, it was like I was telling them that I was dying of a fatal disease that they were gonna get if they kissed me. That was kind of the way that I told it which is not the case, right, it's not the case, but that was the energy that was behind it. So once, like, the words actually caught out, sometimes we're scared, and that's how it comes out, and so that's okay if that happens, but for me, in my experience, that just led me down a road where then the person responded to my response, which was, I'm expecting you to reject me, and what shifted, and I'll just talk to where I am now, because this has shifted over the couple of years of opening my relationship, but I have disclosed it many, many times. And I just want to say I've had this for, I think, 18, 19 years at this point, and I still don't like to disclose. It's still not something that I enjoy. It's something that makes me nervous. And, and I just want to let people know that, because especially if you're new to having genital herpes or any kind of herpes, right, if you're new to herpes, and disclosing is new, might be like, oh, well, it's because I don't know what I'm doing or, you know, might feel critical, but it's just a sucky thing, especially if you have worthiness wounds, right, or attachment wounds, like, it's still, I'm so afraid of being rejected, and of course, however, what I recognize now is that if someone isn't cool with it, even after I give them some space, then they're not the person for me. That I'm able to recognize because I love myself and I care about myself. And I don't need anyone else to complete me. I would love to exchange love with others. That would be fun and pleasure and all of those things, but I don't need that to validate my worth anymore. And so now the way that I tell people is I tell them like I am a responsible adult who would be having this conversation even if I didn't have genital herpes. Sometimes it's in person and sometimes it's on text message. The reason why sometimes it's on text message is because a lot of the people that I am 
dating or potentially dating or may have had sex with uh, have partners already. And I'm not seeing them that often. And so if I know that I want to see someone again and might, we might have some kind of sexual experience, I know that their partner needs to be on board with this before I tell them or before I have sex with them, right? And so if I wait till I see the person, we're not going to have some kind of sexual experience until they talk to their partner. So that's why sometimes I do text message, right? If I want to get down with this person, also I'm just impatient, right? So, so if I want to get down with this person, but they have to talk to their partner, and I recognize that and I respect that and I want that, then I am going to actually just send them a text message. And for some, this is not the way to go. For me, I actually love the, the text message route, and this is how I do it. I by no means just send a text message in the middle of the day that says, hey, I have general herpes with no like precursor. Like, that's not what I do. It's like an emoji, right? I don't do that. What I do do is that I text the person and I say, hey, um, I'd like to take a moment and talk about getting tested and STIs, etc." Do you have a minute to do that? We can do this through text or we can hop on the call. I kind of put it in their court because I'm cool with either. Some people are like, we can just do it through text, sure. And then others are like, I'd be down to do a phone call if you would. And I'd be like, great. And so then some people I talk to and some people on the phone and some people it's text. In some occasions, they go first and they tell me. And some of them are like, I have HSV1 or I have HSV2. And I'm like, oh, okay, word. This is what I have. And some are like, this is the last time I've been tested, and this is what I have, or this is what I don't have, or whatever it is, right? I don't have any STIs. And then I say, whether it's verbally, person on the phone or in text, I say, this is the last time I've been tested. I usually get tested every four to six months. If I really have several partners, it'll probably be every four months. This is the last time I've been tested. Everything came back negative. If, however, I also have had HSV-1 generally for 18 years. I say I haven't had an outbreak in 12 of those years. And then I also, we got into a deeper conversation a lot of times around just because I didn't, haven't had an outbreak doesn't mean that asymptomatic study doesn't exist, right? I'm very upfront about that. That's not in my initial spiel, of course, but you know, I say that. And I say, if you have any questions, we can absolutely talk about it. I understand you have to tell your partner if they have any partners. And that's what happens. The difference is that I'm coming from a way more empowered place. Mm -hmm. I'm coming from a place where I need to be having these conversations because I'm sexually active and I'm having sex with more than one person, even if I wasn't. Even yeah. if I was only having sex with one person, I still want to be like, have you been tested? And if you haven't been tested, then okay, no shame or anything, but great, it's time to get tested. I've had partners that are like, word, I'm going to go get tested. And they get tested for all of it. Those that don't have HSV, they make sure that they tell their doctor, can you test me? Because they realize that they could have, they might have it and not know it. It's just set me up personally to feel a lot more empowered. Still scary and uncomfortable, <laughs> but definitely more empowered. Someone asked a question when I was at an event where we were just talking about herpes at um, Sex Positive St. Louis. There was a couple, it's a polyamorous couple, one partner has herpes and the other partner has yet to test positive for herpes. And the question was, do I need to disclose my partner's status to other partners? What's your, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, absolutely. How does someone go about that? 
at what point is it just a matter of just hey my partner has genital hsv just wanted to let you know what other information needs to be included with that i will say i've never been on the needing to do that end because i'm the one that has it but you know my partner has done that he does that with every partner what i will say is that in ethically non-monogamous communities disclosing and talking about sti status and talking about getting tested is something that is so common and typical. Same with like kink communities, right? The, the beauty of kink communities and, and uh, ethically non-monogamous communities is that we are in communication. Because if we're not, this shit is not gonna work. And so we are forced to be in deep, deep, deep communication. We don't always do it, do it well. <laughs> Sometimes it's, it's a mess. But we are forced to be in deep communication, right? And so, these kind of conversations, telling partners, partners, like, it's pretty common. So that's the first thing. There's somebody that's listening that's polyamorous and they have it and their partner doesn't and they're worried about their partner needing to tell. A lot of people, it's common and it's a common thing. And also, if you're in a space where you're having a lot of different sexual partners and whatnot, there is a chance that you're going to contract an STI. It could happen, sure. The beauty is, is that in those kind of communities, oftentimes there's a lot more disclosing. And so there's a lot more safety in that. But for Nick, as far as I know, I think he does it when he does the conversation that I just told you about, right? The conversation of, because he has those conversations too, even though he doesn't have an STI. He has the, when were you tested and what you have, anything like that, any disclosing. So he has, he does that. And I'm pretty sure that's when he, when he tells people. Thank you. This because that's been something that came up and I wasn't able to answer. And I thought that given your relationship style, uh, you'd have some insight from Nick. So thank you for sharing that. I think that the entirety of our conversation really covers this. But as far as protecting partners who may be more vulnerable to contracting herpes, Communication appears to be the biggest measure of, quote, safety. I'm working on using the word risk, safety, and trying to interchange those with vulnerability some kind of way. It doesn't really sound right or roll off the tongue, but it definitely fits more. What are some sex practices? Like you said, you're involved in kink and BDSM as well. How are you outside of the conversation, reducing the vulnerabilities. Yeah, so communication is first, and consistent communication. Uh, and then safe sex practices, just like, you know, anybody would have, really. And so that includes using protection, that using condoms, or for some people, uh, I don't use dental dams. But dental dams are another uh, way to use. There's also the internal condom, which people have, you know, that used to be called the female condom. But So about that, so I, I tried to correct someone on it being an internal condom. And I think this person was saying female condom because these don't work for anal sex. Okay. I um, know, uh, right? I, I, I <laughs> could be a discussion for another they, day. I was told that they could work for anal sex. I've never tried. Yeah. And the only thing that I could think of is that it's supposed to be used vaginally because it doesn't offer uh, as much protection anally. I cannot speak to that. I thought that it was. But what I will say is that that still doesn't feel very supportive for non-binary folks. 
I, and so I don't know why calling it the inter, or maybe the female-bodied condom, because to me, female just makes me think that only women can use it. And so if there is a person that is not identified as a woman, right, and then that kind of leaves them out. And so I try to keep that open. I really enjoy female condoms. I like them. I've had a partner that really enjoyed them who didn't like using condoms that much, but was able to um, get more pleasure from female condoms. Or I know. I was like, oh, I just, I just, I just blew. <laughs> um, I'm going to call them internal condoms because I, I feel like it's a better way to call them. So my impression was from what I've heard and some resources that you could, but if you can't, then that's understandable. So there are those condoms. <laughs> there are regular condoms. There are dental dams, and there is being in conversation consistently, right? Consistently is a really big word there, not just having the conversation once. I mean, we have usually, yeah, I have the conversation once, and that's that. But in polyamorous or non-ethically non-monogamous or kin communities where there are other people that are involved, the conversation might need to happen again or in, in different ways. And so... The safe sex practices are the safe sex practices, always getting tested as well every four to six months. For me, that's what I do. But really is checking in with yourself. And you know, if you do have an STI, those fears of rejection and maybe ways that you are disconnecting from it or that you are afraid to speak about it or anything like that, I think that that's really holding yourself accountable lovingly passionately in that way because I think that's where a lot of times things can get sticky is because it's scary and uncomfortable do you have sex with multiple genders I do and so these safe sex practices apply universally communication yeah. and barriers where needed you just you choose not to use dental dams so if there are toys involved are there safer sex practices for using toys as well Absolutely. So it would be the same thing. You could put a condom over a toy. You could wash the toy. Um, and I'll say that I wouldn't be opposed to using dental dams. Um, my ex exploration with women is... I feel like that would be triggering from the saran wrap a little bit for you. <laughs> well, we use dental dams too. It wouldn't be anymore. Um, eh, maybe it would. <laughs> Who knows? I wouldn't know until I was in, in the experience. But I'm open to being in conversation with people around what makes them feel safe and connecting with what also makes me helps me to feel safe. And so if that isn't aligned, that's okay. That person isn't rejecting me just because they're like, I really need to use dental dams and wash my hands 50 times or whatever it is, right? Like, because... Some people are concerned even for manual stimulation. If this hand goes here and then this hand goes there, could that be this? And and some people aren't. And so maybe that person is a fit for me and we can work it out. Or maybe they're not. And that's okay. And I haven't always thought this way. And I've taken on, jumped on the rejection train when stuff like that has happened. But everybody has different ways that they're going to feel safe. And I, I like to think of it as that if our ways don't align it's not that they're rejecting me or that I'm rejecting them. It's just that our ways don't align in this moment. And if I really check in with myself and say, doing that is going to be triggering because of the past or whatever that is, then that's okay. Either we can be friends or we just go our separate ways. 
And so when you take out all of the additional meaning and stories and, and fear out of it, just take all that out and you just have two people do our ideas, ideals, ways that we feel safe, does all that align in this moment and continuously? And if the answer is yes, then we keep moving forward. And if the answer is no, then with love, we go our separate ways or you know, we explore another way of relating. I feel like there's a lot of stigma in being polyamorous or non-monogamous or just living that alternative lifestyle so openly. I've talked to therapists, I've talked to doctors, people who are in more conservative fields who are extremely active in non-monogamy or kink communities who feel as if they have to keep their identities anonymous or they have to have um, a level of anonymity in fear of something. And you openly talk about non-monogamy or your experiences with polyamory and being sexual and you're able to have a work life and there's no fear around getting fired or not getting clients or being able to feed yourself so can you speak a little bit to that like what's that experience been like have you faced any sort of shaming or stigmatization being so expressive sexually you know i think a very important point in this is that a I'm an entrepreneur so I work for myself <laughs> yes and B I am in a line of work that is not conservative this probably wouldn't be happening if I was a lawyer which I originally wanted to be since I was 11 and almost went to law school and you know all of that stuff or if I worked for a corporation that's important right? I have a certain level of freedom now, I created that for myself. This is the life that I want. This is the life that I've always wanted. And so I created that. And so anybody has the opportunity, and some it's, it's a lot harder than others, right? So it depends on where we are in the spectrum of our living and our relating. But this is something that I absolutely choose because, you know, I mentioned a little bit before that I was coming into my purpose when I was doing humanitarian work and teaching yoga teacher trainings. My purpose had shifted again. My purpose now is is around sexuality and sexual healing and engaging in life in a way that is unconventional and being a support and an inspiration for people that truly want to live in a way that is stigmatized and is unconventional but feels so true to them and so I created a space in which I could do that in which my income is connected to my truth and to my life and to my lifestyle and it's all connected because to me compartmentalizing my life does not work Authenticity is one of the most important things to me. Am I always 100% authentic? No, I'm not because none of us are. But in that is authenticity, right? In that, admitting that is authenticity. And so if I had to sequester a piece of myself, I would suffer. I would really suffer. And I can't talk to anybody else's experience about that, right? But I can only talk about my own. I kept being ethically non-monogamous a secret for eight months. And I didn't like it. And I, I can't say, like, I don't really know because do I, do I know if certain people aren't coming to my yoga classes anymore because of that? Maybe they are. Do I know if, 
you know, certain opportunities aren't happening because of that, I don't know. But what I do know is that I'm still thriving and I am calling in people that are aligned and there are a lot of people that want support around sex and sexuality and polyamory and just want to be seen and heard. And most of the work that I do with my clients isn't necessarily even about that right now. It's just about so many people have reached out to me because they feel like they can, that I will listen to them and won't shame the shit out of them because I'm so open about who I am and how I am. And so that's the ways it's benefited me, right? Because people are like, oh, like if she's this invested in who she is, then I'm going to be able to express how I am and that that's going to be accepted. So these days, um, I know you're a yoga instructor. You mentioned going through tantric sex certification. What else do you have going on, especially like after having so much internal work done for yourself? It's really nice for people to be able to see someone who, through their herpes experience or their experiences that came after their herpes diagnosis go on and thrive because we feel like not only is our sex life over, but we allow for it to seep into other areas of our life in a very negative way. And here we are now, two people who are using our experiences to empower one another. And I know that you're empowering people in a number of ways. So um, what else do you have going on? The bulk of my work right now is I do transformation coaching. And then so I've been working with people for probably about four or five years at this point. And I work with people, a lot of this of this conversation has been around worthiness and around our wounds around worthiness and our fear of rejection and the ways that we engage with others and in relationships that continue to push on our fears and our wounds and that's the work that I do with people so I offer guidance and support from the tons of different modalities that I've learned over the years and now I mostly do work with women that is expanding but I mostly work with women and in the space of empowering them so that they can thrive which is to me like where I want to be. I want to be in a space where I'm happy, where I'm healthy, where I'm thriving. Yeah, I heard a quote on a podcast yesterday I was listening to on the Jordan Harbinger show and the guest, Laura, I cannot pronounce her last name. She said, we're chasing happiness when we really need to be chasing fulfillment. And that that hit me. I was like, whoa, all right. Uh, How can people find you? How can people connect with you? Are there any offerings that you have for the listeners? My website is my name, BrittanyPaulaCastro.com. I'm most active on Instagram. I post on there frequently. I also share my blog on there as well as on my website. So I have a, a blog called The Breakthrough Blog, which I am very, very vulnerable around my experiences with polyamory, with sex, intimacy, healing, all of that stuff. And so that comes out every Wednesday, and that's on my blog. And I'm most active on Instagram. My handle is... Also, my name, Brittany Palacastro, and I post my blog on there. Um, I have a breakthrough blog where I talk about really raw and intimate accounts of healing and polyamory and relationships and sex, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. And then that's on my website at BrittanyPalacastro.com. And then also I offer anyone that is interested in potentially doing this kind of deeper 
healing work. Um, I offer different packages. And so in order to see if that could be a fit, I offer uh, 30 minute free discovery sessions. And so you can get that um, on my website. I'll also I'm sure include a link um, to, to potentially do some really powerful work together. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, Brittany, I really, really appreciate your time. And I want to shout out Emily DePaz for connecting us. You can follow Emily on Instagram at sexelducation, which is sexelducation. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to, and share this podcast in order to help us continue to expanding and do the work that we are doing. If you enjoyed this episode or if you're hearing it and you feel called to be a guest on the show, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'm on social media at H on my chest, or you can visit spfpp.org and send me an email or go to the inquiry form.